You're listening to a podcast from Turners Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. Well, I was um, having a conversation with a pastor fairly recently uh, from a church a long way away. And um, it was a fairly new church, a church plant in a, uh, another town. And he was telling me that the basis of his ministry and the, the core message that under, underlined everything they did was from 2 Corinthians 5.19, where Paul writes, God was reconciling to the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's uh, sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. And he's saying, our job is to have this message of reconciliation. And that means telling people that basically God has already done everything you need to be saved. All you have to do is believe. And therefore, and this was his point, he was really big on this, he was trying to persuade me this is the right way to do ministry. Therefore, it's the wrong way to go about things, to preach repentance and forgiveness. We just need to tell people that God's, God loves them. And uh, I went to the church website to find out a bit more about what he was saying, and th- there he was saying, we don't need to preach about repentance and forgiveness. And that idea is fairly fashionable, actually. I think it's fashionable for a few reasons, uh, partly through uh, perhaps uh, overzealousness in our preaching about repentance in the past. Perhaps uh, it can be a bit unnuanced. It can seem a bit severe. I think it's uh, fashionable because our culture doesn't really like coercive tactics. We don't like to kind of back people into a corner and say, you know, you've really got to make a choice. We don't like that because we feel like that's happening all around us. Uh, we're, we're very sensitive to those things. And uh, and we have a tolerant, you know, we like to emphasize tolerance and respect and uh, f- uh, for where people are already at. So asking people to change as a kind of upfront requirement for the gospel kind of goes against a lot of our cultural preferences, I suppose. Um, but according to Luke, who is the author of the book of Acts that we just read from, and of course Luke's gospel, if our proclamation of the gospel doesn't include repentance and forgiveness, then we're not actually obeying Christ's command. And uh, in our reading today, we see that really clearly. Luke is making a bigger point. He's expecting us to read his gospel and acts kind of together as two books. And in his gospel in chapter 24, uh, when Jesus uh, appears before the disciples, just before his ascension, he, he sits down, he has a meal with them, which is really cool. He asks for some fish to be cooked and given to him. And, you know, he has a meal with them and um, he explains what's happened. Then he says to them, you know, you don't, you don't need to be afraid or shocked or puzzled about what's happening. This is all according to scriptures. According to the scriptures, the Messiah must suffer and die at the hands of wicked men, be handed over, and he must be raised to life. And then, according to scriptures, repentance and forgiveness of sins must be proclaimed in his name to all nations. That's Luke's summary of the Great Commission. Repentance and forgiveness should be proclaimed to all nations. And it's interesting that of course, woven into the whole Christian message, you look through the Old Testament, if you look through all the ways that Christ is prefigured in the, in, uh, the history of, the, uh, of God's works among God's people, what we see again and again is a preparation for the message of salvation to be presented in this way. You have to repent. God offers forgiveness. The whole sacrificial system is designed to emphasize those two things. So today what I, w- I want to talk about is why is it that repentance and forgiveness of sins is central? to our proclamation of the gospel. So I hope there's going to be some pretty good application from that. And I think there's some kind of personal points that uh, some maybe prophetic stuff that God wants to do in our hearts as we uh, ask that question. I don't just want to reiterate that we should be out there telling people they need to be need to repent. Although, in, to be honest, that's 
kind of part of the message today. Um, and I find that a helpful message as well to hear, to, to remind me that it's okay to bring a challenge. But there are other things going on as well. So I want to look at four reasons. I mean, these certainly aren't all the reasons. So, you know, if you spot a hole in what I'm presenting, you know, I've missed something. That's planned, hopefully. Uh, you know, I'm not trying to give you all the reasons why repentance and forgiveness are there in the gospel. Well, I want to give four that really um, stand out to me and I think God would speak to us about. So firstly then, God wants us to preach the gospel with uh, based, uh, centered on repentance and forgiveness because we have come to persuade people about Jesus. We've come to proclaim a message. Uh, and that proclamation involves persuading people, getting people to a point where they need to actually make a choice, make a change. So when we uh, proclaim the gospel, we're not simply putting out our stall in a marketplace and hoping that people might wander up and pick up our magazines and read them and go, oh, that's interesting. I think I might become a Christian. But actually God has commanded us to go out and proclaim the good news. We are to actively go and preach to people. That's Jesus' command. Now, it's true that people become Christians in all sorts of different ways, of course. And we can look through church history at all different examples. And people do come and kind of flick through the magazines, as it were, if not literally. They might read a book about Christianity and be persuaded. They might buy all sorts of different aspects of Christianity. There's a one of my favorite stories is in the early church. There's a guy called Justin Martyr. I didn't think that was his name while he was alive, by the way. But, in, but his, he was probably just called Justin. But later on, he became Justin Martyr because he was martyred. Anyway. <laughs> and um, he became a Christian. He was a philosopher. He was he loved to explore truth. He he wanted to find out what the the deep reason behind everything was. And he explored all different systems of thought. And um, up until the time he was a Christian, he was a Platonist. He loved the philosopher Plato and thought the answers were there. And then one day he bumped into a Christian, an old man, walking by the seashore near wherever it was he was at the time. And this guy began to talk to him about how all the prophecies of the Old Testament are fulfilled in Christ. And began to explain how Jesus makes more sense of the world as a truer philosophy than Plato was. And Justin Martyr was just so blown away by this, he became a Christian. Almost immediately, he gave his, his life to Jesus. He, he became baptized and he went on to be a great teacher um, and leader within the early church. Now, so he, his conversion wasn't based on repentance and faith. And you, you yourself may not have come to, to Christ in the first instance because you heard someone say you've got to repent and believe and God will forgive you. You may have come in a different way. But here's the thing. If our commission is, if one of the central missions of the church is to proclaim the faith, aside from the fact that me, people may incidentally become Christians, then we have to think about what the best way to do that is. What the best way to do that is. We have an amazing faith. Like uh, Justin found out, it answers... I, I have to say this because I'm the pastor of church, but it really does answer every question. It, it affects every part of our lives. You know, we have so many amazing truths that reach down to the very, very depths of what it means to be a human being, depths of human need and all sorts of things. We have amazing things. But which truth should we begin with? Which bit should we proclaim? Should we proclaim the perfect law of Christ, his, the morality by which he expects Christians to, uh, to live? Or should we proclaim the Trinity? Talk about the mystery of three persons in one God and go out to people on, you know, in Queen Square and Crawley and say, hey guys, have you heard about the Trinity? It's the best thing ever. Or should we proclaim, you know, which part of our truth should we talk about? That's the question. All those things are amazing and true and powerful and relevant. But God says to us, the best way, the way that you are going to 
crack open most people's hearts to the truth is to proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins. It's powerful because it doesn't just present an abstract truth that invites a kind of, well, what do you think? But actually it brings people to, uh, proclaiming the gospel this way, it brings people to a moment of crisis. It brings people to the fact that they have to make a decision of whether to bow the knee, to bend the knee to Christ, or turn away from him. So we see this in the passage. Look at Peter's presentation of the gospel. He basically brings this crowd of people. The background to what's happening here today is, um, many of you will know, Peter has uh, seen a, a beggar, a crippled beggar on the steps of the temple in Jerusalem, begging for money. And he looks at this guy and he's asked Peter for money. And Peter says, I don't have any money, but what I do have, I give you in Jesus' name. Get up and walk. And the guy gets up and immediately begins to walk, not just walk, but dance around. He has been healed miraculously. And this healing brings a huge crowd of people because they all know him. They all know this is a miracle. They've seen him on the steps presumably for years and years and years. They all gather around and Peter's beginning beginning of our reading is, you know, don't look at us like we're doing anything special. This isn't us. This is Jesus. And by the way, and then his message about repentance begins. Look at how he he, he presents it. He talks to them about uh, that Jesus is a servant of God. He is the Messiah. And then he says to him, you guys, you handed him over to be killed. It's pretty, you know, it's not exactly kind of postmodern evangelism, is it? It's not gently, gently, you know, you handed him over to be killed. You killed the Lord's anointed. The, the guilt lies in you. And, and he compounds it by highlighting the kind of irony of their, the ignorance that they've acted in. He, he says, look, I know that maybe you didn't understand fully what you were doing. But let me tell you how bad this situation is. You asked for a murderer to be released so you could kill the author of life. Do you see the... The parallel he's drawing, you asked for a murderer to be set free on your behalf so you could kill the author of life. You've literally done the opposite of the good thing. You've done the worst thing imaginable. You're almost comically bad. If it were at all a humorous matter, but it's not. This guilt lies upon you. And now he's bringing us to the crisis moment. He says, you see how guilty you are? You see the healing that's happened. That's the Jesus that you killed. And he's brought them to a moment where now they have to make a choice. He's basically said to them, guys, do you see that you're on the wrong team? <laughs> you may not have understood right up until this moment you saw the beggar, uh, this, this friend of yours you've known for so long. Until that moment when you've seen him get up and walk, you may not have realized or even believed. And maybe I even understand your doubts. But right now, here's proof right before you. You're on the wrong side. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? There's an armistice in place. <laughs> He's saying to them, there's a ceasefire. God is saying, if you come to me in repentance, I will forgive you all that you've done, even this most heinous of crimes, all that you've done in your ignorance. But now, do not add to your ignorant sin, willful rejection of the Messiah. There's this kind of act He's brought it down right to a pinpoint, hasn't he? He's saying you have to make a choice. It's so powerful. It's so powerful. And that's why God gives us this command that when we preach the gospel, we are basically to do something like that. 
And obviously the people we're going to be speaking to aren't going to have done the same things as many of the people in this crowd have done. But essentially we're giving the same message. Whether you know it or not, you've rebelled against God. You're walking in ignorance. <laughs> you're, you're in danger. And God understands that you haven't known him and you've done things without realizing. And to some extent you've been a victim. Now there's this offer before you to come to Jesus for salvation. Don't now add to what's gone in the past, willful rejection of God's mercy, but come and accept that offer of forgiveness. Yeah, so I think it's powerful, isn't it? Can you see, the, the point I'm trying to make is pretty simple. Can you see the sense in why God would say, this is the way you're to present the gospel? If we present people with morality, you know, but Jesus says, don't cast your pearls before swine. He's not saying people aren't worth teaching. He's saying, if you try and teach people about the morality of Christ before you've taught them about repentance and forgiveness, they're not going to get it. And in fact, they'll probably think you're stupid. Because how could anyone live up to the standards of Christ? If you try and teach them about the Trinity, their eyes will probably roll back in their head. Because there's no context for that, is there? If you try and teach them about adoption or glorification, how one day we're going to be like Jesus, they've got no context for that. But if you teach them about repentance and forgiveness, it goes straight to the heart of where they're at. You know, and I guess the picture that came to mind as I was thinking about this was, you know, imagine you're... Okay, it's not easy to imagine because it's a silly example, but it's the best I could come up with. <laughs> imagine you live on the edge of a desert in a lovely house and someone comes stumbling out of the desert one day and they've obviously been... They're, you know, they're near to death. They're absolutely parched. They've had nothing to drink for two and a half days, not more than three, because they'd be dead. They stumble into your house and you say, welcome, welcome. I'm here to help you. Don't worry. And then you begin to list all the great things you've got in the house. We've got the best, you know, we've got the best bedding, the most comfortable bed. We've got a lovely dining room. You can watch TV as much as you like. I'll, I'll make dinner for you. What, what's the one thing they're interested in? Water. So the same thing with the message of Christianity is so full. It is the, you know, we have everything that people need. But where people are at, the message they need to hear is, we've got water. We've got the thing that you need right now. The thing they will hear and respond to is, there is the possibility of repentance and forgiveness. So there's a message in that for us. There's a message, perhaps you're here, if, I don't know if you've made a, a commitment to be a Christian. I don't know everybody here. But if you haven't, the one thing I would say, it's, it's so important to face up to. One thing to hear above everything else is this, that you have a choice to make. You know, I grew up in my own testament. I grew up in a, in a Christian home. And it wasn't until I was 10 years old, which may sound young to you, but it wasn't until 10 years old that I, I understood that I needed God's forgiveness. And a, a preacher stood up, a, a preacher was preaching in an evening service at my church, and he preached, you need to be forgiven for your sins. Do you understand how you, what the situation is between you and God? That for me was pivotal. And maybe that's a message you need to hear. You know, I'm kind of hoping Sophie would be here, but she's gone out with a kid. So I, I want her to hear this message. It's like, you know, you've grown up in a Christian home. You understand all sorts of, you know, she's a clever girl. She understands all sorts of aspects of the Christian life. But here's the thing I really want you to understand is, so if you cannot live a life that's righteous before God. There are things going on inside, you know, I remember when I became a Christian, I, it was like I went to, to God with a, you know, they say if you see like a little blotch on your skin or something, like a mole changes shape, you should go as soon as possible and the doctor will check it out. 
you know, and it just seems so insignificant. That's what I look back at my 10-year-old self, and I think the sins I was worried about, they were so insignificant. But I knew they were serious. Even then, I knew that left unchecked, they would grow into something profoundly destructive. God spoke to my heart, and I, I want Sophie to know that. And maybe you need to hear that. That message is so important as if you want to be a Christian, if you want to carry on and grow in the Christian life, you need to know that there are things inside you you need God's salvation from. Being a Christian isn't just a case of just naturally progressing, but you need God's dynamic and powerful intervention in your life to free you from the sin that is in you without Jesus. That's the gospel we're to proclaim. And God wants us to be bold no matter what our cultural preferences are, no matter what the environment around us, he wants us to be bold, knowing that, that part of the, the method of preaching the gospel is presenting people with this crisis. You need to repent. You need God's forgiveness. You know, we don't just want people to be intrigued. We don't just want to attract people. We want to go out and proclaim the gospel and have people overwhelmed suddenly with it. Don't we? We want to see people converted in that incredible way that we've known about in the past. Sudden need to decide right now, will you bend the knee to Christ and give your life to him, receive forgiveness and so on. So that's the first thing. Why is uh, repentance and forgiveness of sin so central? Firstly, because it, it's powerful. It brings the gospel to a head. Um, Isaiah speaks these words, and they're prophetically they're words of Christ, if you like. Um, in Isaiah 49, verse 2, Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he spoke in my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow. Into a polished arrow. And that's what we have in the gospel. We have a polished arrow. We have a, a sharp end of the wedge that can get into people's lives and present them powerfully with the truth of Christianity. So I wonder if there's someone you know who perhaps, more out of fear than anything else, you've held back from challenging with the gospel, of actually saying, you know, the way you're living your life, you're like a bull in a china shop. You're like someone who'd accidentally kill the author of life and save a murderer. You know, you at best there's ignorance. At worst, there may be rebellion in your life against God and things are not going to end well. You know, okay, you're not going to use those words, but is there someone you can bring that challenge to? Maybe God's put someone in your heart this morning. Okay, so that's our first reason. Second reason is this, uh, that the one who's forgiven much loves much. I think that's such a good reason why repentance and forgiveness are at the heart of our gospel. Second reason why we should preach the gospel focusing on those things is because um, repentance and forgiveness produce a passionate love for Christ. You know, I, I was going to say something mildly controversial, but if you've got any questions about it, you can ask me about it later. I don't have time to unpack it. But I want to say something like this. Understanding repentance and faith isn't necessarily, it doesn't always necessarily ha- happen at the beginning of a person's walk with Christ. So not everyone who's a Christian begins with, oh, I need to repent of all my sins and I need to be forgiven. Actually, God does the work deeper in us. He regenerates us first. We're born again first. And then gradually, we know this from our experience, really, gradually we become become more and more aware of our need to repent and of the depth of God's forgiveness. You know, I 
I often think about this. If God revealed to me how much of a sinner I was when I first became a Christian, I would have given up. Before. I wouldn't have even asked him for forgiveness. I'd be like, it's too much. Forget it. I'll go. <laughs> you ever feel like that as a Christian? You know, if God revealed everything. So we know that we learn our need for repentance and forgiveness gradually as time goes by. But I think what I've certainly seen, and I'm sure you see the same thing, is that often in, in the lives of Christians, until there is an appreciation of our need to repent, until there is an awareness of the depths of God's forgiveness to us, there isn't really a passionate love for Christ. But once a person has recognized how much sin they have that needs forgiving, and they've recognized the, the sheer depth of Christ's forgiveness for us, then it's kindled in them a white-hot love for Jesus. So Jesus, in the, in the house of Simon the Pharisee, speaking, having had his uh, feet washed by the hair of a woman of ill repute, talks about his love for her and the depth of his forgiveness for her, and then turns to Simon the Pharisee, who has welcomed in Jesus into his house, but not actually welcomed him, neither anointed his head with oil nor washed his feet, hasn't given him a kiss of greeting. He showed no respect to Jesus. And Jesus says, the reason why you haven't respected me or shown me any honor is because you think you're okay. Unlike this woman who has, knows her sin, you don't know how much of a sinner you are. And because you don't know how much of a sinner you are, you don't love me. And Christians, we can be like that. The less we appreciate how much we need God's forgiveness, the less we love Jesus. The one who's forgiven little loves little. And Jesus isn't saying, oh, you know, some of you need to be forgiven less than some of you. He's saying, until you realize your need for forgiveness, you're not going to have this love for me. You know, the Apostle Paul, his whole, it seems to me, his whole mission was motivated at the heart of his his drive to serve Jesus and go around all the Mediterranean and all the places that he went, preaching the gospel and suffering terrible things, was this incredible fact. It was like a, like a nuclear power at the heart of his gospel engine. was, God has shown me mercy. I was such a sinner. I was I'd like these people, um, Peter's talking about today, Paul persecuted the church of Jesus Christ, hated them, and God showed him mercy. And he was so full of that awareness of God's mercy to him, that it, it drove him to preach the gospel. And I'm sure Peter was the same. That awareness of how much Jesus had forgiven him, that the crucial moment, Peter full of all his bluster and his loyalty and his, you know, I'm going to be the one who stands by his side. At the one time when it would have really mattered to say, I'm with you, Jesus, he completely failed. And Jesus forgave him and restored him. And didn't take away from him his leadership of the apostles, but reaffirmed him in it. And is using him here to preach the gospel to the, you know, the first members of the church. It's incredible, isn't it? So it makes a lot of sense that if we're going to share the gospel with people, we want to share it in a way that brings this, is likely to bring this deep and powerful love and appreciation of work of Christ into view. Like I say, we could preach the Trinity, we can preach, you know, the moral law, the beauty of, you know, all sorts of different aspects of um, Christianity. But when a person comes to appreciate their need of God's forgiveness, and it brings into view the whole plan of God, and most of all, of course, it brings into view the beauty of the cross. 
and reveals in a way that people can understand their need for God and the depth of God's love for them. The depth of God's love for them in their current situation. Who, before they were Christian, could possibly understand the phrase, we share in all the inheritance of Christ? But a person knows their need for forgiveness. They know the bad things they've done. They know the guilt that is upon their back. More, some more, more than others. A person knows that there's a price to pay for what they've done. They may not have a concept of eternal justice. They may not have a concept of, of God's perfect holiness. They may not have those things, but they probably, almost certainly understand guilt. And the weight of it is probably in some aspect of life bearing down on them. And if we present the gospel to them, God will forgive you. And grant you peace for what's gone before. What an amazing and immediately understandable offer that is. You know, I I just thought of a a guy I met a a few years ago at the Bible College in Gilgal. And, you know, he was a a kind of short, wiry guy and he looked a bit geeky. He had these kind of jam jar glasses. And, and, um, you know, I asked him his testimony. He said, well, some gang members killed my dad. And so in a murderous rage, I made an elaborate plot to kill them all. And I had the whole thing worked out in my head and I was going to go around and kill them all. Uh, uh, you know, I was so angry. And God came and spoke peace into my heart. <laughs> I heard the message of the gospel and God gave me peace. You know, he, didn't, he, he didn't have any understanding of the history of salvation or theological concepts. He just had this thing that was like a fire raging inside, inside him. And all he needed to hear was there's a freedom from this. There's a way out of this. It doesn't involve you doing this this awful thing. The same for the people we preach the gospel to. So I'm giving you a fact. Why is it sensible that we preach the gospel this way? But let me ask you on a personal level, have you reflected on that for yourself recently? Have you reflected on your own need of forgiveness? Have you allowed God to Bring it home once again what you've been saved from. How deep his mercy is towards you. I see, just think about this point and just wanted to bring it home in a way that, um, you know, is God speaking to us this morning. And I just had a picture of um, the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. Hundreds of thousands of them. You know, what a miracle to have seen that. You know, the seas parted, piled up like a wall on either side. And yet amongst those Israelites were children and babes in arms who, although they experienced the miracle, they'd know nothing of it. They wouldn't even understand it. And there are some of you who've been Christians a long time. And maybe you even became a Christian when you were young. And your salvation is like that. It's like you were carried through this incredible miracle. Or, or maybe it's just so long ago that the, the, the sheer impossibility of what God has done in your life has become a distant memory. I just feel like God would, this morning, want to minister to us and bring home again with fresh power what it is we've been saved from, how much he's forgiven us, how deep his mercy is, how nothing lies beyond the scope of our repentance, how every part of our life can be redeemed by him. And maybe it'd be good to just pray into that and as we worship a bit later.
comes and say to us, do you remember the depth of my love for you? When you look upon Jesus on the cross, he died for you. I gave my son for you. My son gave himself for you. That you might have everything. So the one who's forgiven much loves much. A third reason why I think uh, it makes sense for repentance and forgiveness to be at the, the spearhead of our proclamation of the gospel is because it motivates us. You know, not it motivates us because we know how precious it is to experience those things in our ongoing experience as Christians. You know, the most... I think of uh, Peter and the, uh, uh, the crippled man at the gates of the temple. You know, think of all the things that Peter's experienced and all the, uh, the lame people Peter has seen Jesus heal in his, in his time. Peter knows from his acquaintance with Jesus, from being so close to him, he knows that Jesus heals, doesn't he? He knows that, and probably more than anybody else here, Peter, more than any other Christian who's ever lived, Peter knows that Jesus can make lame people walk. And it's that acquaintance with the gospel that I think in part gives him the courage. I don't think it's just a gift of faith. I think the Holy Spirit does surge through him and give him that gift of faith. But I think as he looks at that this guy begging for money, he sees this opportunity and the, the memory comes fighting back. I know Jesus heals because I've seen it so many times. And it moves him to say this thing. Just, have you thought about how bold, how brave Peter was in the moment? Yeah, I don't have any money, but what I have in Jesus' name, get up and walk. You know, I would just be overcome with doubt at that point. I just have, for me, if I did that, I would just have images of this guy, you know, stumbling around on broken ankles and landing on his face. Peter's just full of faith and speaks. Why? Because he's acquainted with the power of Jesus in his own experience. Now, there's a parallel here. There's a parallel here. Not all of us will, ex- will witness the kind of healing that we saw in this passage. God willing, we might. And God does still heal like that today. But the most comprehensive and most powerful ongoing experience that all Christians have of the power of God at work in our lives is through his ongoing forgiveness. Of the fact that again and again and again, Jesus forgives us heals of us of our sin, restores peace to us. Grants us again the joy of his salvation. Gives us power to walk in righteousness and newness of life. You know, I was um, reminded of a, a film I haven't seen for ages. It's really old, 1985. Uh, Cocoon, does anyone remember the film Cocoon? And it was like, uh, there was a, I, I haven't seen it, so forgive me if I get the details wrong, but there was this swimming pool and I think it was next to like a retirement home. And I think basically what happened is some really old people started swimming in the swimming pool and miraculously they kind of rejuvenated and started acting really young. Does that sound right? Okay, I've got this. I should probably check my illustrations a bit more thoroughly, but <laughs> I think that's basically what happened. And then because they're so young and lively and youthful, the whole retirement home begins to hear about this and they start swimming. The pool is like enchanted. I think aliens have laid some eggs there or something like that. It's, it's details. Uh, 
but the, because they're so sprightly, one, one of them climbs a tree or something like that, and you know, another one starts learning tango, or I don't know. But uh, it, the whole retirement home begins to think something's up, and they begin to watch what's happening. They find out they're swimming in this pool, and they see every day they get in and they come out, and they're like, they're young again, and so they all dive in and they ruin it. But that's, that's not the point I'm trying to make. <laughs> so the whole retirement home is renewed. But you know, as Christians, I just, I feel like this is such an important point for us this morning. Something that God would want to remind us of so powerfully. We have something. It's not a science fiction story or, you know, from the 1980s. That's not far-fetched, but we have something where again and again, daily if necessary, we can go and be fully restored. Fully restored in Christ. Just as when we first came to faith. Isn't that wonderful? That first experience of forgiveness, of grace, of God's absolute peace is available to us again and again you know in in the great ancient tradition of the church um it it was said that the cross is revealed as the tree of life that used to stand in eden you know and the garden of eden was there and there was this tree of life that they um adam and eve were banished from eating once they sinned against god and so and because of that they they died but this tree it seems worked a bit like perhaps a bit like the swimming pool. Again and again, you could come and you could eat the fruit of it and and be uh, revivified all over again. And we have something like that in the cross of Jesus. We come to him, we confess our sin, as um, Johnny was preaching about last week, and we receive once again the blessings of knowing him. And that's a truly wonderful thing. You know, I've recently on a, on a personal note, I've really been challenged in the way that I pray to God about my sin. And I've been challenged to not just be like, God, I'm sorry for such and such, or God, would you help me change, da, 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 but actually to confess frankly and fully, almost as if I'm like a, a scientist of, you know, who's cataloging. This is what I did. And this is why I think I did it. And this is the route I think it is. And please, will you forgive me? And to come to him with the details of my sin, and, you know, I found it such a powerful experience. I'm not saying that's, like, for everyone. It's not in the Bible that we should do it exactly like that. But I found it such a powerful experience because it's reiterated for me in ways. In the past, often, I've, I've prayed and confessed my sins to God and thought, you know, is that done now? Do I need to pray again? You know, maybe there's some lingering feeling of guilt. But ever since I've been just confessing to God fully like that, I've felt this closure that God is almost like he's, at the end of that prayer, he's saying to me, there we go. All done. Good as new. And that's what's available to us as Christians. You know, that ability to repent and be forgiven is so wonderful. It brings honesty into our lives. We don't have to rationalize our sin anymore. It brings integrity into our lives. We don't have to hide our sin anymore. It, it turns the, the burden of unproductive guilt into a life-changing effort. It, it brings us into a a profound spiritual encounter with Jesus where his peace pours into our lives again and his joy comes uh, uh, into our lives again. It, it settles the wall that's inside ourselves. It rages against God. And most importantly, it brings us, as we confess our sins to God in his ongoing way, it brings us before the love of Christ to the, the foot of the cross once more and, and brings fully into view the grace of God to us in Jesus. We come close to him and we remember how amazing he is. I'm just gobsmacked that my sin, my disobedience, God uses again and again to bless me, 
Because every time I'm disobedient and I come to him and I repent, I experience again the wonder of his forgiveness. You know, and it works. You know, as I repent before God time and again for big things and small things, I am actually genuinely transformed and empowered, little by little, step by step. And so repentance and forgiveness in our lives as Christians brings us face to face with Jesus and makes us acquainted. Like Peter was acquainted with Jesus' power to heal, we are acquainted with the joy of forgiveness. And so it moves us, it moves us to share that joy with others. What we experience, we can share with others. You know, and I just, again, I'm outlining why I think it's a good idea, but I just want to speak personally with some application to this. You know, I'm pretty sure there are some of you here this morning who just feel so condemned by the fact that you have to keep confessing your sin to God. That you feel condemned, weighed down by the fact that you have to keep repenting. You know, we we go through life and we think everything's okay and then we discover you know, another aspect of our personality where there's some major flaw, some major problem we weren't even aware of. Some rebellion against God that up until now has gone undiscovered. And we feel crushed by it. And yet, God says, don't be crushed by it. Just bring it to me. Confess it, repent, and experience my forgiveness all over again. You know, it's a source of joy for us. God wants to flip it around and say, you know, this dealing with sin shouldn't feel like this condemnation. It should be a source of joy for you. Every time you encounter sin in your life, you can bring it to me and I'll deal with it. That is amazing, an amazing promise. You know, even, even dealing with willful sin, I'm talking about, you know, discovering sin, but even when there are things that we do and we know that they're wrong and that, you know, habits of sin, patterns of sin, where we're willfully rebelling against God, even that, if we come to him and confess and repent and are forgiven, can be as a source of joy for us. The fact that we are there before him saying, God, I'm sorry, is good enough for him. You know, I just reminded a preacher a few months ago about how many times should we, should we forgive. And the thing that struck me most about that sermon was Jesus says to his disciples, 70 times 7, as in there is no limit. But that's how he treats us. Every time we come to him and say, God, I'm sorry, he doesn't say, are you really sorry? Really? He takes us at face value and washes us clean and sets us on our way again. And I just think that is so wonderful. So wonderful. It it gives us the motivation to evangelize. So this constant experience of grace grants us confidence to evangelize because we see how wonderful it will be for people to experience that. You know, I'm sure that was the case for Peter. His own experience of God's grace gave him that confidence. You know, one one person said this, um, Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. And I think when we have that ongoing experience of being satisfied, we're so eager to tell other people, look, this is where you can go and find that satisfaction. So fourthly then, lastly, it makes sense to have forgiveness and repentance central because we should be, because of this ongoing process, we should be experts 
at knowing about repentance and forgiveness. You know, we call uh, the Puritans uh, called uh, Jesus, had a, a title for Jesus, the great physician. I don't think that's in the Bible. Um, and physician is an old-fashioned word. They meant doctor, just to bring it up to date. He was a great doctor. He could diagnose our diseases and deal with us intricately and, uh, you know, with perfect wisdom. He knew how to deal with our sin. And because Jesus deals with us that way, we are able to deal with other people that way. We can actually become ex- experts in sin. <laughs> Not like that, but we can be experts in diagnosing and treating sin because of the way Jesus deals with us. You know, so you've got those pictures. I don't think I've ever seen this in real life, usually on like American programs. They've got like a consultant walking around. He's got a group of uh, students following him and he gets to a patient's bedside and he goes, uh, well, what are your symptoms? And guys say this and then he'll turn to one of the students and say, so what's wrong with this man? And the student will give a completely wrong answer and then you know, the doctor will say why. You know, that's us and Jesus. In our ongoing experience of, of repentance and forgiveness, we actually become fairly expert at knowing how to preach the gospel to people. Do you think that's true? The more we understand how Jesus deals with us, the more able we are to spot opportunities. You know, I was thinking uh, at the conference last week, collection conference, um, my friend Sam was preaching and he was talking about how he uh, was... Um, he worked up the courage to evangelize his barber, who was this this uh, lady. A couple of you were there. Great, great story. And you know, they never said a word to each other. They, they spoke so little. He didn't even tell her what haircut he wanted to have. <laughs> she was kind of this really reticent Mancunian, you know. And um, and one day he just begin. He just started a conversation with her and uh, began to talk about what he was doing at the weekend. And they got talking about church. And you know, anyway, it made me think about some of the conversations I've had with barbers. Some of the opportunities I've had and, you know, and, um, I was reminded, I think it was last time or time before I went to the hairdresser in Crawley. I won't tell you which one because it, it would embarrass him. I was sitting there having my, um, my haircut and every like two minutes or so, he would just stop, completely stop and just go out the window like this, just looking out the window. And you know, you're not supposed to move when you're in the chair, right? So I was like, I don't really know what's happening, but I saw him in the mirror. So I worked up the courage to move my head. Thought he might tell me off. And to look at what he's looking at every two minutes. And he was just staring at women. Just staring at women walking past. You know, usually they were dressed in such a way, you know, that he could stare at them if you see what I mean. But anyway, and he was just ogling women. And I just thought, you know, wow, you've got a lust problem, seriously. And, you know, how do I know that? Because I'm an expert in sin. Because God's been dealing with that problem in me. Because he has dealt with it in me. You know, so I, I there's an opportunity there to speak to the gospel. Another barber I was seeing at, he's um, a, a guy in East Grinstead. I'm not a very loyal customer, as you can tell. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, we've got to know each other over, over quite a long time, actually. And, um, you know, he's, he's uh, I'd say he's a nice guy, but I don't think he is, actually. Like, we get on well, so I like him. That's the truth. But some of the stories he tells me, you know, he was telling me um, they got nowhere to park their cars because they're in the middle of East Grinstead. So he started parking... Uh, in a private car park. And then the proprietor of the building that it was next to came and complained. So he said, so I thought, lots of swearing, uh, I'm just going to park in front of it. And they, they put up like a, a rope or something like that. And he says, I'm just going to park in front of it just to annoy them. <laughs> like, wow, that's pride right there. You know, this kind of anger. And he said, uh, you know, and, um, he's, he was talking about his uh, ex-girlfriend and he phoned her one day and he heard this guy in the background and um, he was saying some stuff he didn't like and so he went round to where she lived and ambushed him and beat him up and no one ever found out. This guy was just 
black and blue on the floor and and uh, he never told anyone. But, you know, he got what he deserved. So, And I was like, what? you know, the anger that's inside you. But you know what? The reason I can identify that, I'm not judging him. I know that, that I wouldn't, I'm, I'm not sure I'd have the courage or the strength or the fighting skill to do whatever he did. <laughs> but I know unchecked, the same anger is at work in me. But God has dealt with me and is dealing with me. You know, and I just think of all the ways that God has forgiven me and corrected me and brought his, his wisdom into my life to change me. And I just, and I don't just see those as people who just need Jesus. I think, gosh, you actually need Jesus because this anger that you feel, this lack of peace that you feel, this absolute being trapped to lust that you feel, these are things that Jesus can heal you from and set you free from. And I know, how do I know? Because he's done the same for me. He's made me an expert at diagnosing it. Well, you know. I hope that comes across the right way. You know, he spared me from the consequences of my own foolish decisions. He can spare you. You know, I was in, uh, I, was, I was thinking about this, uh, I was in Aldi yesterday, as is my habit, and <laughs> just hanging around in Aldi. And there was a lady, and um, she was shopping in the f- aisle number four, and uh, she was on her own, she had a f- giant uh, trolley, and we were just happened to be like buying the same stuff at the same time. And, uh, I think I heard her say sorry. I'm not exaggerating. Twelve times. Every time someone walked past, she was like, sorry. Every time, you know, sorry, 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 sorry. And it was so much sorry that I really nearly said to her, gosh, you say sorry a lot, don't you? And uh, preached the gospel to her, but I didn't. You can pray for me. But, you know, there's something there. That insecurity, that feeling like I'm always in the way, like, who am I? You know, there's an opportunity to preach the gospel there. And I know that. Why? Because, you know, God deals with my insecurities, which are, you know, part of my sinful and fallen nature. So why is it great to put repentance and forgiveness at the center of the gospel? Because we're experts at it as well. So we're already trained on how to present this amazing truth because God is dealing with us in exactly the same way on an ongoing basis. And we're motivated because we know how wonderful it is to be forgiven. And it opens up people's uh, lives because it brings them to that point of crisis. You know, these are, these are wonderful things. I just think it's amazing that God uses us like that. So I want to, you know, just lastly, just have confidence that God is able to use you to speak to people in this way. Use you to bring the joy of his salvation into someone's life. You know, isn't it amazing that God could take someone like Peter with all his faults and make him this preacher? Isn't that incredible? Isn't it someone he could take someone like Paul, the murderer, and make him uh, the, the apostle to the Gentiles? There are people, think about it, there are people who Peter is preaching to right now in this passage who they themselves had bade for Jesus' blood. Crucify him. Based on the context, we can see that they were in this crowd. Some of the same people were in this crowd who'd asked for Barabbas to be freed and Jesus to be crucified. They were there. And God saves many of them. They went on to tell the gospel. If God can use them, he can use certainly use us, I'm pretty sure. You know, God has ordained praise from the mouth of infants, the Bible says, but not just infants, from the mouth of his enemies. You know, he saves not only people who are lost, but people who are turned against him in absolute rebellion. He saved them. What a wonderful saviour we have. You know, in Revelation, it gives us a glimpse of heaven, and in the centre of it all is a picture of the cross. Worthy is the Lamb, the creatures in heaven, and the 24 elders cry, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise.
to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.